If you'll find your place with me in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to begin reading in verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 17. We're in a series entitled Fraud Alert, uh, making sure that we don't get scammed. Today we're talking about there is no other foundation. We talked last week about there's no other name, and before that there's no other God. And next week we'll talk about there is no other gospel. But today we're talking about no other foundation, and I want you to follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds, how he builds on it. For no other foundation, there's our phrase, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test everyone's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is, is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let's pray together. Father, today we come to your word and we pray for guidance and leadership and understanding. Lord, I can only do so much in making the word clear and plain. Ultimately, it's the Spirit of God who guides us into all truth. And we pray that he will have freedom in this service to be able to guide us into the truth of this passage. Lord, I do think today of some of our families that are bereaved. They're dealing with the death of loved ones and Lord, before we come to the message, I want to stop and pray and ask you to give comfort and peace and grace and strength. And may they be surrounded by your love and may they be looking forward to the day that they'll gather together with their loved ones on the other side. Now, Lord, help us to focus our attention on what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was 1985 and... I'd only been the pastor here for about three years, almost going on four years, and we decided as a congregation that we needed to build a gymnasium. I don't know if you've noticed this about West Virginia or not, but there's not a lot of flat ground. In Georgia, where I grew up, you could find rolling hills, but you could also find a lot of flat ground to build on, but not so much in the community where we live here on this ridge, and so we called in a builder and somebody who was an engineer and an architect and they, they looked at the lay of the land out back of the only building we had at that time it just fell off completely down into a ravine if you will but he came back with a plan he said we can do this we can build this facility we can build this building and of course we were all excited about it it's my very first building project uh, that I've been responsible for that I've overseen and it was, uh, at that time, an enormous project to me, something uh, that I was living right next door to in the church parsonage, watching all of this unfold in my backyard. 
My wife and I and the kids went away for a short time early in the summer, and by the time we got back, they had already dug for the foundation to be laid, and it was unbelievable what I was looking at. Uh, Where they had cut it out uh, back into the hillside, they had taken all of that dirt and they had pulled it out over that hillside, and they had created this flat spot, and of course, in the process, they had compacted it all along the way to try to make sure that the dirt was as sound as possible. And and then they took something that they used to drill these huge holes, four feet, five feet across, all the way down as deep as they needed to go until they reached rock. And there must have been 10 or 15 of those that were across that uh, flat area that had been created. They came and they took rebar and they fashioned it into a box shape. And they put that rebar as deep as they could down all the way to the rock uh, that uh, they had reached when they were boring those holes all the way to the top where the hole, the opening of the hole was, and then they came back and they poured them all full of concrete. Once the concrete had cured, they came back and they formed up what would ultimately be the basketball floor. They formed it up and then they began pouring concrete. And that concrete floor over there across the street sits on those pillars that go all the way down to the rock base that holds it in place. As you know, there's a gymnasium over there. There's classrooms. Uh, there's a couple of offices over there. There's a kitchen. There's bathrooms that are over there. And that, that facility for the last 30-plus years has been an incredible blessing to us. Provided us opportunities for basketball. Provided us opportunities for the kids to have place, a place to play. It's had, provided for us opportunity for us to have dinners and receptions and various things. And all of it sits on that foundation of the rock where they went all the way down to the rock and they poured those pillars. Now, I haven't looked recently. I haven't been over there in a few weeks, but I have not, when I was over there the last time, seen any place where there are cracks emerging because the building is moving. That's not a good sign, right? I have not seen any place where there are cracks emerging because the building is moving. They set it on a solid foundation. And then they started coming back with steel and with the various other items that were necessary for the construction of that building. And they began making a structure on top of that solid foundation. Now, probably everybody here has been through some kind of a building project like that. Maybe not a gymnasium. It may have been a house or may have been a a commercial business that you built. But you understand the building process and you understand the importance of the foundation and you understand the importance of what is built on top of that foundation. The Apostle Paul picks up that kind of an image. He picks up that kind of a metaphor, and he uses it in the text of Scripture that we read here, and he uses it specifically in the work of the church. Now, a lot of people come to this passage, and they say it applies to my life individually, and certainly there's an application of this passage to our lives individually, but really, this passage is about the building of God's church, not the brick and mortar, not the concrete foundations. This is about the people of God, the church that is the temple of God being a people that there's a work that's going on, there's a building that's taking place. And Paul talks about three specific things that I want to draw to your attention. You see them in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. The word is used, that's used there is the word for an architect. 
As a wise master builder, I have, here's number one, laid the foundation. Number two, another builds on it. And then number three, let each one take heed how he builds. So consider with me these three thoughts for just a few minutes today. First of all, there's a foundation that has to be laid. And that foundation in this case, when it comes to the building of God's church, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not only the foundation, that's the cornerstone of God's church. Paul had come to the city of Corinth, and when he arrived there, he would spend 18 months plus in the city of Corinth. And what was he doing while he was there? He was preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he says that he was amongst them. In chapter 2, verse 3, he was amongst them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. When I read those words, it makes me wonder, why in the world, Paul, were you there in weakness and fear and much trembling? But when you back up a little bit and you review some of the things that had been going on in his life, you begin to understand he had been attacked and beaten and then jailed in Philippi. He was forced out of Thessalonica by an unruly mob. And then some of that mob, at least a remnant of that mob, followed him to Berea and created trouble for him there. And then when he gets to Athens, he sees the idolatry. He, he sees the wickedness of that city. And he's deeply disturbed and goes out and begins to preach the gospel and proclaim the truth in Athens. And then he has to cross the sea in order to get to, the, to, to, get to Corinth, from Athens to Corinth, to be able to, to arrive in the city of Corinth. And when he gets there, though he's in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, what does he do? He does exactly what the Apostle Paul did in every other city where he went. He preached Jesus Christ in him crucified. Jesus Christ in him crucified. Now, you've got to stop and understand the significance of that message in the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was the largest city in Greece at that time. It was located on a narrow isthmus that connected Macedonia to Achaia. To the east was the Aegean Sea. To the west was the Adriatic Sea. And sometimes to keep uh, ships from having to sail 200 miles around the isthmus, they would simply bring those ships up on to these huge logs and they would roll it over land from one port to the other port on the other side. This city was known as uh, a place of great wickedness. The temple of Aphrodite is in this city. Aphrodite is the goddess of love, and you can imagine what was going on in that city. Actually, I hope you can't imagine what was going on in that city. They had even, they had even coined a word just to specifically peak, speak of people in a derogatory way, and that was the word, they've been Corinthianized. That's, that's a Corinthian woman. That, that's a Corinthian man. That wasn't a compliment. That was a matter of saying they've taken on the evil ways, the wicked ways of the people of Corinth. And so after all that the Apostle Paul has been through, after all of the trials and the tribulations that he's endured, after the length of journey that he had to make, make across land and across sea to get Corinth, he's met with all of this opposition and all of this wickedness that's constantly in his face. But what does the Apostle Paul do? Just exactly what I've already told you he did. He came to lay the foundation of God's church. 
And what was that foundation? That foundation was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn back just a few pages with me and let's read it together. Acts chapter 18. And follow just a few verses here that just give you an indication of the kind of ministry that Paul had. Even though he's tired, even though he's weak, even though he's trembling from all that he's been through. Listen to the kind of preaching that the Apostle Paul does. Acts 18 verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now listen. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that interesting? On one side of the wall, you have people who are rejecting Jesus, and on the other, you have Gentiles who are open to Jesus. And listen to verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, right next door, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. What does Paul do? Paul comes to the city of Corinth and he preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel in difficult circumstances with the opposition that he's faced before he got there and the opposition that he was facing when he got there to people who were willing to listen and to people who weren't willing to listen. The apostle Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice what he says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but what church? To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. If you turn over a page to verse 23, you notice in chapter 1 he says, But we preach Christ crucified. If you get down to chapter 2, at the end of verse 2, he says, except, I, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is the foundation of the church? The foundation of the church is not the latest survey and study and the latest statistics. That's not what we're building the church on. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. The church is the foundation. And can I tell you something? The stability of any structure is directly related. Did you hear that? The stability of any structure is directly related to the security and, found, and soundness of the foundation. If the foundation that's being laid isn't secure and isn't stable, that structure isn't secure and it isn't stable. Too many of our churches are moving away from the preaching of the gospel. They're getting away from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. They're removing the crosses 
from their auditoriums, and they're taking the songs about the shed blood of Jesus out of their songbooks, and they're trying to be more market-driven so that they offend fewer people. But we got to understand there are always people that will be offended by the gospel of Jesus, but there are people just like you and me who will hear the gospel and come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and who will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a church is built on the preaching of the gospel. When the church stops preaching the gospel, the church ought to stop existing as a congregation. I think about the stability of this foundation for an illustration that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 7. He's not talking about the building of the church in Matthew 7, but the illustration he gives is about the Sermon on the Mount that he had just delivered and being obedient to the things that he commanded. And he likens it to two uh, two men who are building a house. One of them builds his house on the shifting sand. It's a beautiful palatial estate. It's an incredible place to be able to live. The other man builds his house on the rock. Well, inevitably, as it always does, the storms begin to come and the rain begins to fall and the wind begins to blow. And before very long, the house, though beautiful it may be, sitting on that sandy foundation, the foundation begins to wash out from beneath that house. And before long, there is a great fall of that house. But it's that house that's built on that solid foundation That house is the one that stands in the midst of the storms, that stands through the tests of time. The house that's built on that solid rock, the church that stands the tests of time, is not the one that's built on the shifting sand of of secular uh, ideas and secular humanism. The church that stands the test of times is the church that is built on the gospel of Jesus, the death the burial and the resurrection and the proclamation of that gospel. And Paul says, I came to your city in Corinth and I laid that foundation. In typical fashion, a politician was asked the question, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And he responded, as a politician you would think might respond, well, he's the only way for me. That's a fraudulent answer. That's the wrong answer. That's an answer that will scam you for the rest of eternity. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ and hopefully your life specifically is built on the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no other hope than Jesus. There's a song that we sing sometimes. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you're in a church that's not preaching the gospel and not faithfully proclaiming the gospel, then you need to get out of that church being built on the sand and get into a church where the foundation is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I came to your city and I have laid a foundation. I have laid a foundation. The second thing I want you to see is that there are fellow workers helping to build. You notice he goes on in verse 10 and says, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. In other words, the Apostle Paul came. He was there for 18 plus months 
preaching the gospel, proclaiming the truth of Jesus. He said, I didn't come to baptize, though baptism is something extremely important in the profession of every believer of his faith or her faith. I came to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Who comes behind him? None other than Apollos, the great orator. Apollos comes and he preaches, but now Apollos is gone. In the building of the church, did you know that God is building his church? We, we read in Matthew 16 that Jesus says, I will build my church. Absolutely, Jesus is building his church, but do you know who he's using to accomplish that task? He's using you and me. Just like you have to be involved in building your business, we have to be involved with him building his church. Notice what he says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, we're God's field, and we're God's building. I point that out to you because God comes before it all, meaning that he's the owner of the fellow workers, he's the owner of the field, and he's the owner of the building. We belong to him, and we are cooperating with him, and we are working together to build God's church. It's the reason why you can't sit at home and be contributing to the building of God's church. The reason why you can't, unless providentially hindered, you can't watch through a screen forever. Because to build God's church, you gotta be there, you gotta be a part of what's going on, you gotta put your hands into the work. You gotta build God's church, and we are fellow laborers in this task. When we built that gymnasium, we had the idea of what we wanted to do, and the desire of the church to go do it but we didn't build the church physically ourselves there were laborers who came and built with us and on our behalf and we are laborers fellow laborers with God and he is doing his work in us and he is doing his work through us to build his church you say was well, church just ought to happen no it doesn't just happen Church is being built. The churches are being built by the people who are going to work in the task of building his church. God intends for us to be fellow workers. There are people and fellow workers that are helping to build. Now, when you're building like this, there's four things that are important. The materials are important. Wouldn't you agree? You'll notice he talks about this in verse 12. Now, now, if anyone builds on this foundation, that's who laid the foundation? Paul did when he preached the gospel. Now, if anyone uh, is building on this foundation, any of us who are doing the work of God, building his church as fellow laborers, co-laborers together with him, if anyone builds on this foundation, it ought to be with gold, silver, precious stones, but it may be with wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. The materials are important. There's six different materials that are listed here in descending value. But you could take these six different materials and really just divide them into two categories. There's the durable and the combustible. There's the costly and the cheap. There's the things that endure the fire and the things that are consumed in the fire. And we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, you and I, by the way, you're sitting here, you're listening to me, you're watching me. We are the workmen. We are the fellow workers building God's church on this ridge. You understand that we have to be careful the materials that we choose to accomplish that task. Dr. Thomas Constable, who is a 
well-known theology professor, suggests that unworthy materials can include things like teaching popular ideas that aren't rooted in Scripture or doing social work but excluding the gospel message or using time and money for things that are temporal and have little value rather than for eternal things and that have eternal value. You understand the materials that we utilize need to be the gold and the silver and the precious stone. Those are the things that are valuable. Those are the things that are non-combustible. Those little things that those will be the things that last the test of time. In other words, he's talking about what? The quality of what we do. Amen. The quality of what we do. We don't give it a half-hearted effort. We don't just go about it in a careless manner. But we recognize that what God's given us to do in building Lewis Memorial Baptist Church, that God wants us to invest the best materials that we have, not just the wood, the hay, and the stubble. He wants us to build with gold and silver and precious stone. In April of 2015, there was an earthquake that struck Kathmandu in Nepal there were 8,675 people that died and nearly 22,000 people that were injured. It was the most significant quake for them since the devastating quake of 1934 when nearly 12,000 people lost their, their lives. But do you know what killed most of the people that died as a result of that earthquake? In conditions, in countries like Nepal, the conditions are such that there's a rush to provide urban housing and because there's a shortage of funds, a lot of times they will do things with, uh, you know, substandard building materials, and they'll do things in a haphazard building practice, and the quality of what is built isn't necessarily what it should have been. Did you know that three-quarters of all deaths in earthquakes are the result of buildings that collapse, not the quakes themselves? Do you get the point I'm making? You build with the very best possible materials. You do it with the best quality. Why do we care about how our properties look? Why do we care about the work we're doing with children or with teens or with our adults? Why do we care about those things? And why do we give it our best? Because the materials matter. We're fellow workers. And the materials that we use matter. And we give God the very best. The methods are also important. You notice in verse 10 what he says at the end of verse 10, but let each one take heed, circle the word, how he builds on it. How. It's popular today to say that methods change, the message never does. And in principle, we all agree with that. From culture to culture and from country to country, sometimes our methods have to change. But whether it's evangelistic or pastoral work, both the materials and the work itself has to be in keeping with the character of the foundation. It has to be in keeping with the character of the foundation itself. In other words, if you're building on Jesus Christ, do you really want to put the cheap materials on that foundation? Do you really want to do it by methods that don't reflect an attitude of reverence and honor and respect? You say, but we can get a crowd the other way. Yeah, but that's not what God's worried about, getting a crowd. God's worried about doing his work in the way it's prescribed in the word of the living God. 
in the city of Corinth, there was partiality and disunity. They were using human wisdom instead of divine wisdom. They were evaluating people's call purely on a human basis. A little later in chapter 3, they were wise, it says, in their own eyes. They were boasting in human leaders. As a matter of fact, they divided up themselves. Well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. And then you had the super spiritual crowd. Ah, but I'm of Jesus. I hate to tell you this, but you're all lemmings. God forbid that would be true. God forbid that would ever be true. The methods matter. This church was involved in using not only materials that were of less quality than should have been used, but they were using methods that didn't reflect the high quality of the foundation on which they were building. Why are there things we won't do? Because the character of the foundation must be reflected in the method that we use. Amen? Maybe we can understand it best by asking ourselves some questions. You know, did we give our best effort in what we were doing for Christ and for his church? Are we working together with other believers or are we working against them? Is what we're building on and building with, excuse me, is what we're building with and the way we're going about building reflective of the quality and the character of the foundation on which we are building? The methods are important. Number three, the motivation is important. If you look over to chapter four, this context continues. He changes metaphors. He goes from a field the metaphor of seeds being sown in a field to a building being built by workers to a metaphor where there are things that are entrusted to us that we are managing. But I want you to notice, if you will, what it says in verse 5. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Now listen and reveal. Here it is. The counsels of the hearts. Then each, one, each one's praise will come from God. The counsels of the heart. Here's something interesting. You can't judge what my motivation is, and I can't judge what your motivation is. My mo- motivation may look sincere, and yours may look sincere, but it, in fact, be the exact opposite. We're not qualified. We can look at the materials. We can look at the methods, but it's difficult for us to determine somebody else's motivation But you're going to be judged by God one day, not only on the materials and the methods, you're going to be judged by God on the basis of this this matter of the motivation that we have in our hearts, the secret counsels of the heart. Let me just put it in practical terms. Choir, you sang so incredibly beautiful here just a few minutes ago, didn't they? I love that our choir is back. I love that our choir is back. But choir, did you give your best? Did you sing with all of your heart? Did you prepare your heart before you came to to be able to sing under the power of the Spirit of God? Those of us that work on this platform, do you just show up to go through a job just to do what is your responsibility, to just be able to perform because you like the praise that comes from the performance by people that are hearing you? Those of you that are welcoming people as they come into the facilities and out on the parking lots, were you smiling when you looked at people? Did you get out of your cliques? 
And did you look for people that hadn't been here before or people that maybe you don't know yet and made an intention for, to, to go to those people and get to know their name and to spend a few moments introducing yourselves, making them feel welcome? Those of you in the media ministry, did you show up early? Were you in your place where you needed to be? Were you prepared for what you were doing? To the preacher, did you open your Bible and study this week? Or did you just go on the internet and find something that you could say so you could give a lecture to the people of God on Sunday and get your job done? The motivation has to be right. Number four, the manner in which it's done is important. The manner that it's done is important. Will you look again at chapter 4, verse 2? He says, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found. What's the word? Faithful. What's the manner we do it? We do it with faithfulness. You know what faithful means? <laughs> I used to think people knew what faithfulness meant. I'm not as sure anymore. Faithfulness means that you can have confidence in someone or something to be accomplished. They are people who are trustworthy and dependable. They show up even when it's difficult to show up, and they do what they're supposed to do because they know it's the right thing to do, and they seek to have a heart that's genuine while they're doing it. Amen. And can I tell you that God measures not only the materials and the methods, God not only measures our motivation, but God measures the manner in which we go about the work. Are we dependable? Are we reliable? God measures our trustworthiness. He measures our faithfulness. Do you see the opposite was going on in Corinth? That they were measuring people by their wisdom and by their eloquence and by their impressiveness. We, we still like that. We're still like that. Um, I, have to, I have to battle this all the time. Uh, I can't be Charles Stanley. I can't be Charles Swindoll. I can't be David Jeremiah. I can't be Robert Jeffries. I can't be any of these other uh, orators of the Word of God that are incredible, blessed men of God for whom I give great thanks to God. I can't be any of those people, but I can be who God called me to be, and I can give the best that God has given to me. And the one thing that I can do just like the rest of them can do is I can show up, and I can do my job, and I can be trustworthy, and I can be reliable, and I can be counted on, and I can be faithful. Amen. I can be faithful, and so can you. There's a story in the New Testament Mark chapter 14 actually is found in Matthew and in John. But I, I take it from Mark 14 because there's a phrase there that I want to emphasize. It's about Mary, the sister of Martha, Lazarus. And as Jesus is headed toward his crucifixion, you know, the upper room, and then to be arrested in the garden and to be crucified, the unjust trials, the crucifixion, and then three days later, the resurrection. They're, they're in a room together in Bethany. And this woman, Mary, comes into the room, and she's got this very expensive ointment. It's a year's wages that this ointment costs. It's probably an heirloom, probably something handed down to her from one family to the next. It's, it's, that, it's that item that you hold on to with all of the dearness of your heart. But 
Mary is more perceptive than the disciples are. And she knows that something is happening, though she doesn't fully understand all that is happening. And she brings that ointment in. She breaks open that flask, and she begins to pour the oil on the head of Jesus and then pours it onto his feet. And she anoints the Lord Jesus Christ before he'll go out and be crucified and go out and be buried. The disciples are standing around, and they're watching this. Judas is the spokesperson. That's pretty appropriate, wouldn't you think? Judas is the spokesperson. He says, what are you doing? We could have sold that from, for 300 denarii. That, that's a year's wages. We could, have, we could have paid for the food for the poor. We could have put clothes on their back. And Jesus said, stop it. Stop it. You've got the poor with you all the time. I'm not going to be here long. He went on to say that what she has done will be told for the rest of the ages to come. It's recorded in the Word. The Word's not going away. It'll be read and talked about for the ages to come. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus said something about this woman when she was being criticized. And this is what he said. She has done what she could. You know, that's all that God's asking you to do. Do what you can. He's not asking you to be me. He's not asking me to be you. He's not asking you to be this person over here or this person over here to be that person. He's not asking you to do everything the exact same way I do it or me to do everything exactly the same way you do it. He's not asking me to be Charles Stanley or Charles Swindoll or David Jeremiah. He's asking me to do what I can do. And the manner in which we do the work of building God's church is the manner of faithfulness, faithfulness to what God has called us to do. The materials are important. The methods are important. The motivation is important. The manner in which we do it is important. That brings me to say, thirdly, there's a future judgment that has to be faced. Go back with me to verse 10. I have laid the foundation. Paul did that when he preached the gospel. Another builds on it. There are other people who are working in this process to build the church at Corinth that have come in behind Paul and behind Apollos. But he says, but let each one take heed how he builds. Why? Because there's an inspection day coming. There's an inspection day coming. There's a future judgment to be faced. You know the inspection day. If you've ever sold a piece of property, ever sold a building, you know what inspection day means, don't you? They're going to show up. They're going to look that building over. They're going to look that property over. They're going to make sure it is what you say it is, and it's the way it ought to be, right? It gets inspected. Do you know what inspection day is for the child of God? It's called the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Christ. Bema meaning judgment seat. The bema seat was a raised seat uh, that the judge would sit on, watching the games and and, uh, observing the games. They would sit and watch the games and judge the games as they were playing out before them. And then... When it was time to give the award, the reward, the person would stand before the judge who was on that seat. There's a day like that for every one of us, and you stand there on your own. You stand there to give an account for how you have worked in the building of God's church. By the way, if you're not going to work to help us in the building of God's church at Lewis Memorial Church, you need to go find you a place where you can help the church build the church in that location 
Because God doesn't intend for any of us to be, to be people in the stand watching the others of us work. He intends for all of us to be building his church. All of us to be involved in the work of the ministry. And there's a future judgment where you're going to have to stand before God. And he's going to inspect the works that you've done. And we could talk about the suffering loss. He talks here that the fire will cause some to suffer loss. But, but please understand, this judgment is not about reward or punishment. It's not about heaven or hell. This judgment is about rewards or the loss of rewards. Did you hear that? It's about rewards or the loss of rewards. Let me just make it clear. Nobody gets into heaven on the basis of what you do. We only get into heaven on the basis of what Jesus has already done for us. And if you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the day for you to say, Jesus, be my Savior. Amen. Jesus, save me. There is no other way to heaven but through Jesus. No other name under heaven given among, whereby, given among men whereby we must be saved. So we talked about last week. There is no other way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you will be evaluated and you will be tested as to the works you have done in the building of God's church as to whether they should be rewarded or whether you will suffer loss as a result. You say, what kind of rewards are we talking about, Pastor? Well, sometimes he's talking about privileges that will be given. Privileges. You like privileges? For instance, in Revelation 2-7, he says, To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life. That's a privilege. I'll give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Not only will there be privileges given, there'll be positions that will be assigned. He says, if you're faithful over a little, I'll make you ruler over much in his kingdom. Did you know that those who are working and their works are rewardable. Do you understand that we're going to be given promotion and be given an opportunity to rule with him in his kingdom? And positions will be assigned. But the one I want you to think about is that praise will be heard. Look back at chapter 4. At the end of verse 5, after he talks about the counsels of the heart, the, the motivation, he says, then... When you stood before God and he has evaluated you, not when somebody else has evaluated you. Listen, I don't know whether my works are going to be rewardable. I pray they are. I'm trying to see to it that they are. You can't judge whether they are or they aren't either. The only way we'll know is when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he'll be the final one to determine whether they're rewardable or not. But then if they are, notice what he says, then each one's praise will come from God. <laughs> Isn't that good? Each one's praise will come from God. Do you understand what that means? He'll say, well done. We, we like to say this at funerals. This doesn't get said to the judgment takes place. Well done, thou good and faithful servant builder involved in the construction. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of things here, and I'm going to give you an application. If you're taking notes on the app, you can continue forward with me. In your church, 
I'm assuming that's LMBC for most of you, in your church, contribute. Don't be a consumer. In your church, contribute. Don't be a consumer. Listen, we're so consumer-oriented and so consumer-minded that we come to church thinking, what are you going to do for me today? When we ought to be coming to church to say, Lord, what can I do for you today? We ought to leave this church in a few minutes saying, Lord, what can I do for you beyond the the confines of this property for you in, in, uh, in this city and in this community? What can I do for you, God? that'll build your church. We've become so guilty of being consumers. Uh, We love to applaud, but we never put our hands to the plow to help do the work. There was a wealthy woman that died one day. She went to heaven, and an angel took her to see her heavenly abode, and it was rather plain and ordinary. Well, right next to her was her gardener, And he had a palatial mansion. And she said, how did my gardener get a mansion? And I got a plain, old, ordinary building. And the angel replied, well, we only build with the materials you send us. Now, that isn't the way it really happens. But let me tell you how it happens. You stand at the judgment seat of Christ. There are five crowns that you can earn. There's privileges. There's position. There's praise that can come your direction. And God gives you those crowns. And do you know what it says in the book of Revelation? There are those moments when we see the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the earth and we fall on our faces and we take the crowns that he's given to us at the judgment seat and we cast them at his feet because he and he alone are worthy of the praise. At your church, contribute Don't be a consumer. In your church, compliment. Don't be a critic. Oh, man. I'm a master at receiving criticism. 45 years worth, almost going on 45 years worth of criticism. Pick out everything we don't like. That's back to the consumer mentality. Pick out everything we don't like. Now, look, there's a place for constructive criticism, a place for that kind of of criticism, a way to give that kind of criticism, in the right place to give that kind of criticism. I'm talking about destructive criticism where you just don't like something that's going on. I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I'm not happy about this, and I don't... Can you all lean in real quickly? Just, Just lean in. If you have a smart aleck attitude and you have a sharp tongue, you better be careful the little ears listening to you because you're inoculating them against the gospel and against his church. You're giving them a vaccine that'll make them not want the church, that'll keep the church away, keep the gospel away. If you have roast preacher on Sunday afternoon because, oh, wow, because he preaches too long. Or there are some who say, I preach too short. They're the ones I really love. Or maybe they're talking about my height or stature. I want you to look at verse 16. Look at it. Please pay attention to it. 
Do you not know that you are the temple of God? The word temple is singular. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you, the word you is plural. If anyone defiles the temple singular of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you, uh, plural, are. You know what he's saying? He's likening the church to a temple. And he's saying, yes, that we, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. A few chapters later, we learn that. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here's what he says in this passage. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us collectively as a body. He dwells in us. And he says, if you defile or destroy that body, he says, what you have said and done is going to come back to you. That's what he says. Verse 17, if anyone defiles, it means to trouble, create problems. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will, same exact word, destroy him. For the temple is, and here's the reason, God's church is, what's the word? Oh, come on. What's the word? Oh, my goodness. We got to do better than this, folks. You just, you just went to a football game and did better than that. God's church is what? Holy. It's holy. Hagios. It's holy. It's holy. It's holy. It's holy. You don't mess with God's church and get away with it. Let me just give you another metaphor for this. In Ephesians, God likens the church to his bride. And to him is the husband, the head, and the husband. By the way, the husband is coming for his bride one day. Isn't that good news? But let me tell you something. You want to you you irk me? You want to get my ire up? You criticize my bride. As a matter of fact, a few of you, maybe not here, because they're not here anymore, have irked me about what you said or did to my bride and I show up on your front doorstep. You don't mess with my wife. She's my wife. If you got criticism, you, you give it to God. You don't give it to her. By the way, don't go to her to criticize me. The church is holy. The church is holy. At your church, compliment. Don't be a critic. And finally, at your church, cooperate. Don't be contentious. There are some people that when I see coming, I run the opposite direction. <laughs> because they are contentious. All they want to do is argue and disagree and fuss. All they want to do. Yeah. Guess what? I got enough of that already. Enough people drilling holes in my bucket I don't need any more holes, and I get away as fast as I can. You say, now I understand why the pastor doesn't come over to my section and shake my hand. <laughs> hey, folks, there's no other foundation than Jesus Christ. And we're building with materials and methods in a manner of faithfulness with motivations that are genuine and sincere, knowing that there is a day of, of, of testing when our works will be tried by fire. 
And we don't want to do anything to hurt God's church. We want to do everything we can to help God's church. Before I give an invitation, there's one last story I want to tell you. It's a true story. It's about the churches of the Middle Ages when they were building Gothic churches. You can still go tour some of those churches. They're still open to be able to be toured. Those buildings, if you've seen any of them, are elaborate and they're beautiful to behold. But they required a lot of energy and a lot of effort to build. They didn't have the modern machinery that we have today. And it's fascinating how they would go about it. They would have to have a mine somewhere, a quarry somewhere where they could cut the rocks. And it was often miles and miles away. And they would quarry the rocks. They would cut the rocks. And when the rocks were cut and ready to be moved, the people from everywhere, men and women from everywhere, would form a living line from the mine all the way to the building site. And they would pass the rocks one person after the other. And they would move the rocks from the mine to the building site through the hands of all of the people who were helping. If anyone on the rock chain dropped a stone or failed to do his or her part, the church couldn't be built, or at least it wouldn't have been built as quickly or as easily. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody has a part to play. You have a part to play. Get off the seats. Get in the game. Stop watching everybody else and say, I'm going to do my part. We're going to build God's church. Now, I'm not going to build it on my own. You're not going to build it on your own. How did Paul do his work? Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me. We're going to do it as God leads us and as God directs us. We're going to do it according to his word and by his power. But God's going to use us to build his church right here on the ridge from West Pea Ridge. We're going to reach the world. And we're going to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ.